warm welcome to all of our listeners. This is the Cap Gemini Customer Perspective Podcast, where we're going to be keeping you up to date with all the latest news from the customer experience world, as well as reviewing the latest trends and technology breakthroughs. I'm joined today by Chris Owen, Head of UK Next Generation Banking. Hi, Chris. Hey, Raina. How's things? Good, good. Now, Chris, I hope you're keeping safe and well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, we've had the the pleasure of some sunshine in the last few days, so that makes life a lot easier. Fantastic. Glad to hear. Now, Chris, before we kick off, I have to ask, have you picked up any new hobbies or interests during lockdown? Um, so-so. So, um, I've, I've certainly learned how to memorize children's books a lot more. So, you could you could ask me to recite lines from um, Stick Man and Highway Rat, and I'd be able to nail that straight away. <laughs> well, don't worry, we won't be testing you on that today. But what you are here today to talk to us about is some of the major trends unfolding in financial services and the changing landscape of the banking sector. Now, Chris, what are some of the major shifts that you've witnessed recently across the industry? Um, well, I think it's important to you know, recognise at the front end that, of course, COVID has, has smashed the landscape to pieces. And um, that's been across every part of our life. And it's, it's no surprise that banks haven't been immune from this. And banks, both large, small, old and new, their agendas have been dominated by dealing with COVID. And um, what we're seeing is, is sort of five core phases that banks are having to travel through in order to initially respond and then recover and then set themselves up for success post-COVID. And um, they would just walk through those five. So at the very front end of it, there was a the kind of resolve phase, which is where they had to deal with that immediate chaos where on um, Friday afternoon, they could carry on to a certain extent as business as usual, albeit with the, you know, the rider, the flag on the horizon, which said that something would change. But they had to immediately go then to dealing with um, lockdown and what that meant for their customers, their colleagues, their back office, their um, services they provide from overseas, all those kind of things. So resolving that and dealing with the immediate chaos was a huge disruption to banks, particularly the the larger legacy banks, and um, it took them some time to to get that get that done. But you know they're all through that phase now. They've they've put in place their um their ways of working, their new systems, their new processes, those kinds of things, and they're in what I call the resilience phase now, where in the main you're seeing all the banks hunkering down and just trying to maintain the services um, with the constrained resource and different setups and that's seen you know branch closures reduced opening times um huge disruption to where work is done so a lot of the the colleagues at the at the coalface either in branches or contact centers they don't tend to be working from home a lot of the time so setting them up with the right kit to be able to work from home a lot of these folks will work on uh desktops chained to desks in in large contact centers so it's hugely disruptive and they're in this resilience phase now making it work but uh, what we're what we're seeing on the horizon is a recover phase where they're going to have to prepare and work in this new normal where um they need to go beyond just getting getting through and surviving they need to be able to get back to some kind of normal being able to broaden the services they can provide their customers um the propositions and offers in the market and that recovery phase is is on the horizon and we're starting to see in society as the narrative changes from 
you know, being locked down to trying to, you know, get back to some kind of um, normality. And banks are going through the same piece. So they'll hit that recover phase. But that's really a tactical space. And the really important decisions that banks will make over the coming weeks and months around how they reimagine their their organization. So the trauma that society has felt from COVID is um, is profound. And what we're going to see at the back of that is our wants and needs as as customers of banks, um, the things that we want from them, you know, are going to be quite different, we feel, um, after the recover phase. And banks' ability to pivot, to deal with radical disruption quickly is not always great. And um, there's going to be an awful lot of work needed to reimagine the, um, the offers, the services um, that are going to be needed to, to help customers. And I think that, that poses some real opportunities, but some really big threats for banks as well. And then the sort of final thing to consider is the, is the reform phase where we're going to see governments and regulators set out new rules. So there's no, there's no way you can't make a response to what has happened with, with COVID. So there's going to be a drive to put in place new guardrails that could stop a pandemic of this nature causing such huge economic and um, societal disruption. And banks won't be immune from that. They're probably not the most at risk. So they don't have hugely complicated supply chains spanning continents and um, countries, but they they do have their reliance on large towers with lots of people crammed in together. They often outsource large chunks of operations overseas. Um, they rely on face-to-face contact quite a lot still for branch and relationship management in commercial banking. So all those things again need to be considered from a reimagined phase in light of how the world might change from a, from a reform agenda. And Chris, do you think the impact has been felt equally across all types of financial institutions? Or do you feel as though larger incumbent banks have been disproportionately affected? Um, I wouldn't say disproportionately. They've certainly both been affected differently. But I think that's largely due to the scale of their operations and um, I guess their, their key measures in the um, you know, large banks are really measured around profitability and, and revenue, whereas challenges are more um, measured around their engagement and their growth. So on the, on the large bank side, the impact has really been um, sort of shining a light on some of the underlying challenges they know they've had and they've been trying to address, particularly around digitization. So it, it's flagged up a huge over-reliance on branches, contact centers and back office for dealing with a large amount of the customer activity. And um, what COVID has done is shown that if you disrupt any of those areas, it makes it really difficult for them to continue any kind of normal operation. And the cost and trauma to their businesses is large. So I think what you're going to see out the back of this is probably doubling down on digitization and automation as opposed to a a step back from it. It's certainly then at the um, economic end put huge challenges around revenue and profit. So um, 80% or so of most banks' um, revenue tends to come from net interest income where they're able to you know, take the money in at half a percent and lend it at one or one and a half, for example. So um, with interest rates so low, and they've been low for a long period of time now, um, what this is going to do is keep them low and put huge pressure on those revenues. And it's going to, again, accelerate the need for developing new revenue streams around services, propositions that are not in the market at the moment. 
On the profit side, there's just a huge crash. So you've had results in the last month or so where LBG is down 95%, HSBC down 50%, around 40% down at Barclays, with a large chunk of that being down to you know the holding of provision for bad debt. So they're all expecting that a lot of the money they've lent to people um, isn't going to get paid back. And that makes a huge impact on their profitability. And then, um, as we talked a bit earlier, like, I think one of the, the longer term impacts is around you know, how will they be able to deal with the customer needs and wants potentially changing quite radically and quite quickly? They're not things that large banks are particularly good at dealing with. And um, um, so I think that's the sort of landscape they're, they're facing from an impact point of view. I guess on the challenger side, it's slightly different, whereas they've certainly not had some of the profit challenges. But um, what they've got is and the things they're measured on being disrupted as well. So you've seen a sharp decline in downloads and applications around a third across the bigger players like Monzo, Starling, Revolut. That's put an increased spotlight on the you know the longer term business models for these organizations. So it's always been on the table and a a topic of challenges, which is how will they go from, I guess, growing and acquiring customers users to turn them into longer term business model that can that can make money and i think what this has done is put that under the spotlight again even though those guys are pretty well capitalized at the moment it's not going to be long before some of those investors are going to want to get a bit more clarity on what's the roadmap to to profit and i think that will force some of them to you know change the way they do things and how do you see this playing out more long term Uh, that's a really interesting question so you know will those challenges eat the incumbent banks, you know, maybe, but I think it's pretty unlikely. If you look at, without being too a sort of negative and glib, like, um, you know, what, what they've done is generally reimagined um, banking products and services. They haven't really reimagined some of the fundamental business models. So if you take people like Monzo, Starling, you know, they've, they've made opening and managing your money a, a truly beautiful experience. Um, you never thought you could, um, you know, do your KYC um, with you know with joy before, whereas you know it's a, it's a really nice experience to go through and open up um, accounts for them, and that's forced the incumbents to respond, you know, by making their services um, more human centered, by offering much more through digital channels, and um, you know they've done that, and they they probably still lag, you know, they their feature set lags behind uh, Monzo, Starling, Revolut, but ultimately what they haven't done on the challenger side is is blow apart the business models of banks. They've gone after um, getting folks to open up current accounts, savings accounts, something in the sort of lending space. But um, that's all traditional banking products. People like Revolut and Starling, probably most advanced in shaping marketplaces and exploring how you could monetize that. But they're some way off having a scaled revenue and profit line. So um, I think there's a bit of a, a sort of standoff at the moment between whether challenges can take traditional banking products and scale them and make money out of them, or whether actually they're both chasing a business model, which is um, plateaued and on the decline. So sticking with the theme of reimagining banking, what do you see as a core proposition for the future of banking? So that white space that both incumbents and challenger banks need to play for? Um if we sort of take a, a step back to first principles, as, as all great design thinkers choose to do, you know, banking is actually very simple. 
um, you know, banks have spent centuries trying to make it hard and putting barriers in our way because it's it's good for business. But ultimately, it's really easy. So banks offer the ability to safely store value. So that could be money. Um, that could be other items that you know we we hold close to ourselves. They can lend, so they can allow you to have access to to money if you need it, and they can allow you to buy things. So payments, lending, and kind of like you know, deposits is really all banks do. And getting back to that simplicity, I think is going to be where you're going to see great propositions and both challenges, incumbents, and new entrants. Anyone that can do that, I think, is going to be really pushing forward. So as we talked about earlier, challengers haven't really pushed that brilliantly so far. So they've, they've created great digital experiences for traditional ways of doing business. Um, people that are able to remove the friction from those core services and utility are really going to be the ones that I think accelerate and make a real difference. So um, how do you remove the need to log in to an internet banking site to check your money? How do you remove the need to go through forms and paperwork if you're going to um, lend money? You know, payments is probably the most advanced where you've seen a huge reduction in the friction of um, of paying people. But certainly in the lending space and the, you know, seeing your money stored, there's an awful lot of opportunity there to create beautiful experiences that um, are integrated into our lives where ultimately we just don't realize we're using a bank. And that's the ultimate aim, isn't it? Banking everywhere other than a bank. So we have seen some examples already of well-established banking organizations looking to other sectors for inspiration. So for example, Asto from Santander. Where do you see the financial services sector taking inspiration from? I think there's a range of places. And um, you know, the, the spark is often a different set of customer needs and infrastructure and history. So if you take places like China, there's some really, really interesting innovations going on, um, driven by people like Ant Financial, you know, WePay, Alipay, those those players. And uh, messaging apps is a particularly interesting space where the amount of money that gets transferred within messaging apps in China, it, it outperforms the schemes like Visa and MasterCard quite handsomely. And that that's just mind-blowing when you think about the, you know, the billions that gets transferred in those, in those platforms and that just becomes the way that payments are made and that that in itself is fascinating that you can make that step through a messaging app in a way that we just haven't seen that level of innovation in in the payment space in our messaging apps um in the in the us and in europe and in the uk um people like Amp financial part of alibaba are again doing some really interesting stuff in the marketplace zone so alibaba is the amazon of of China, it's a marketplace for buying goods and services. And what Ant does, it um, it also allows you to, as a customer, um, access lines of credit to make um, you know purchases, which is not particularly groundbreaking, but it's slick, it's integrated, it's all part of the same marketplace. But also on the supply side, they they offer some really interesting offers to um, startups to establish business around financial support. That allows the people that are trading on their marketplace to be more sustainable, have better business plans, access to capital, um, payment platforms, checking accounts. So they look to offer support on both sides of the service. And what they've done there is is create a really sustainable ecosystem of um, customers coming back through loyalty and great um, CX on the buying side, and people 
supplying on their platform, liking working with them and and growing that way. So that's again a really great example of um, integrating banking services into effectively a, a marketplace that um, you don't necessarily go there to take the banking service. But when you're there, it's so much easier to do it through their platform. And that why wouldn't you? Um, another slightly different example is, is Uber, who um, quite selfishly, I suppose, wanted to pay their drivers um, via bank accounts. An awful lot of their bank accounts in certain areas were unbanked. And that, that posed a problem for them in that they didn't want uh, to have to pay these guys in cash or checks because it's you know, the operation cost is high, but also the, the risk that exposes you to is, is high as well. And so um, the way they tried to solve that was to become a bank. So they took licenses out in the jurisdictions we're talking about. They then um, you know, effectively allowed their drivers to apply. They took them through a really easy process that onboarded them. And then they were able to get their salaries directly into this bank account. So helping bank the individuals, so making their lives better and solving a, a problem that existed for them, but also reducing the cost and the risk on their side. And so you know, they, now that they've got that um, pool, there's on sales in there around financial services, lending and wealth, but also they've built up the capability. And it's where, where else might we choose to now take this capability um, of banking into other areas with our customer base as well as our supply base. So um, again, a great example of what can be done there and you can take inspiration from removing friction from daily life. I guess the final one to mention is um, M-Pesa who provide banking services through mobile phones and SIMs starting out of Kenya and um, have sort of spread across other emerging economies. And they, they just transformed how the unbanked can access banking services just with a mobile phone and a SIM card. And they sort of pioneered banking innovation across the whole of Africa, acquired millions and millions of customers who couldn't before get access to you know, banks. And it was all a cash cash economy they worked in. And um, you know, it caused such disruption that the sort of existing legacy banks in the area, you know, they tried to lobby against them and they looked to sort of create rules that meant they couldn't you know, provide their goods and services. But um, all it did was sort of spark interest and show how good this disruptive offer was. And so again, they didn't go into the market to um, get, you know, create a traditional bank account. They just wanted people to be able to see how much money they had, to be able to pay each other um, with tech messages, being able to see your balance with a text. And that kind of back to basics level of, of banking just transformed um, what could be done on the continent. And the interesting thing you've seen across all those areas where we've seen great inspiration is that they've gone beyond banking and gone back to first principles, removed the friction from the traditional journeys and um, you know, they ultimately tried to make the banks irrelevant and just sort of make it all about the customer, what they do and how they do it. So really, it seems as though it's the disruptive technology players that really are the true challengers to the industry. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, technology is fundamental to um, how you're able to disrupt in this in this space. And um, we've seen the big tech players um, flirting around. There's been, um, you know, work from Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, um, all trying these things out and looking to say, what parts of that banking value chain could we offer? Um, how could we do it better? And where's the money to be made out of it? And um, the scary thing for banks, both challengers and legacy, is that the big tech have got the resources, the expertise, the courage, and the vision 
to transform markets. Like that, that's what they do. They they don't necessarily want to go out and create a new credit card, which is what you know Apple's offer is. But really, that's not what they're doing. It they want to do something else. It's a stepping stone to huge market level disruption, and that that's what's scary. And um, they've got all the elements they need to reimagine it. And um, what they'll do is they'll make those offers with a consideration for the future models. Um, and that means the future business models, the future need, also the future regulation and rules rather than the existing ones. And that that more progressive um, venture type approach to banking, I think, could be really scary to a lot of the, the folks um, running banks at the moment. And the, the driver is going to be technology, as you alluded to in the question. And the rapid advancement in things like cloud, AI, blockchain, APIs, big data, quantum, all these emerging technologies that are at scale in most form across industries, some banking, some outside of it at the moment, that's going to be the capability that allows um, allows organizations to create propositions and offers that can truly transform what banking is. And then you take a step back from that and say, out of the sort of two camps, the high street bricks and mortar banks or your Amazons, Googles, Apples, who's likely to win a game that um, requires great use of cloud, AI, blockchain technologies? Well, you'd probably say that it, you should be quite rightly worried about what the big tech guys can do. And um, I guess to put it in banking context, I think some of the really key developments in that space are going to be around things like authentication and security. So particularly in the voice space, one of the, the key frictions that arises in delivery of banking services and offers tends to be around being able to prove who you are and making sure that everything is safe, secure and resilient. Security-wise, I'd say that you've got you know great capability in, in the big tech. And on authentication, banks probably know it best, but it's still quite frictionful. And as you start to see voice authentication becoming more mature, and meeting a security setting that makes people happy, that's when I think we're going to see some really fascinating innovation around the use of voice to transform how we bank. So given the squeeze on one hand from these big technology players who, like you said, are playing to their strengths in areas such as vision, expertise, resource, and then on the other hand, you've got your agile challengers who've reimagined customer experience without having the burden of all these legacy issues. Where do you, if at all, see hope for the traditional bricks and mortar banks? Well, I think that you know, all is not lost for the incumbents. Um, they've still got some pretty strong cards in their hand. And um it's about using those well and building from them that's going to make them give them the best chance of doing some brilliant things in the market. And um, the first one I flag up is trust. The public still generally trust banks. They, they trust them with their money, with their financial affairs and with their data in a way that we've seen a quite a sharp decline in the way the public trusts uh, big tech firms with that information. So there's been you know a number of scandals at Facebook that have sort of pioneered that. You've got um, others like Google not necessarily um, showing they they can do that either. And uh, that that decline in public trust around big tech, I think, offers a real opportunity for banks who can who can pioneer that and be the 
safe, trusted place where you keep some of the most important information on yourself. Um, and that pioneers things like identity as a service and all sorts of um, offerings there where they can build on that public trust to do some really good things. On the second side, we still live in um, a set of rules that regulators and governments put in place. That means that there's quite a high barrier to entry. And um, that, as, whilst that barrier remains high, you're still going to see a lot of the big techs being put off making super aggressive plays into the banking areas. I think that as it becomes maybe easier to navigate those regulations or um, you know, regulators themselves become more tech savvy. So things like regulations that are deployed by code, where you actually just integrate the rules and regs into your code base. At that point, you start to think, well, that's the kind of thing that the big techs are going to be brilliant at, the banks who might be struggle with. But as at today, those regulatory and capital barriers still put off a lot of those um, aggressive plays from big tech. So there's still time, I think, for the traditional banks to master what they want to do, generate those new propositions and capability, and, and get into market in a way that um, can delight customers and do great stuff. And um, you know, finally, we all pretty much still bank with some of these incumbents in some form. So be that through you know, our current accounts, through the credit cards, a lot of mortgages, those kind of things. So some of those traditional banking products, we've also got a relationship, which means that these banks are able to get in touch with us and they know, we know them, we trust them in some form. And if they are able to identify, design and get into market offers that um, can pioneer and, and change the game in banking, we're probably still open to talking to them. And that access to customers is, is really key. And so the fact they've got the trust they are able to navigate the regulations and they've got access to customers. Those those three things can make a real difference. And I think that building on those strengths is going to be key. And Chris, from those three examples that you've just mentioned, do you have any examples of where you've seen this done well by incumbents? So um, there's, there's pockets of great practice um, across the, the banking sector from incumbents. So you know, HSBC have done some interesting stuff in the, the platform space. They're pretty good at integrating um, fintech partners to offer offer new capability to customers. You know, Barclays and Lloyds have done some really good stuff too. You've seen um, some left field entrants, things like telco companies coming in and setting up banks. So Orange has done some really great work on the continent um, using their um, you know, retail storefront as a distribution method and um, building a digital bank that allows them to effectively offer all the services you're seeing in a traditional bank, in a digital only bank, a bit like a, a Monzo or a Starlink, but with that sort of link to the, the mobile phone contract and servicing as well. So it's so quite, quite, nice, quite nice offer there. Partnerships is going to be key. So where you're seeing traditional banks move the market and um, deliver the most innovation, it's where they're working with partners and partnerships. So some of the, I guess, most notable are going to be things like um, Goldman and Apple working together to launch the, the Apple credit card. You know, um, on their own, neither would probably have been able to do it as, as well and as quickly as they did it. But as a, as a partnership, it was really powerful. There's been a um, recent announcement around uh, SoFi and Samsung offering a, a similar type of offer with a cash account to link to, to lending. And so where you're getting the best innovation from banks 
in the market. It's where they're choosing to work together with um, other either fintech or big tech players so that the sum of the parts is stronger. So they're, where they're launching things they would struggle to do on their own, that's where the, the best collaboration is coming from. And um, you know, what we're seeing that banks that survive and thrive in this inevitable onslaught from, um, from tech companies are going to be ones that are able to use their strengths and pivot. So using you know, really great design, really great agility to understand customers better, test and learn both different features, but also business models, and then having the ability to scale them rapidly to, um, to mean that you can drive profit from them is going to be absolutely key. And any bank that's able to do those things is going to be more than a match for some of the big tech companies. So a message of hope and optimism then for consumers and organizations in the long run. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, um, if it was easy, it would have already happened. And so the, the fact is you've got a, a complicated landscape of big tech around the edges looking relentlessly for opportunities to break into the what have been sort of quite profitable um, propositions and offers. You've got the sort of challenger banks pushing pushing the boundaries of what can be done from a kind of feature and um, engagement level and the sort of big banks still sat behind there trying to fend off both of those whilst also thinking can we leapfrog and I think that there's exciting times for, for customers in what we can expect from, from banks because I think they'll all push each other to do brilliant things. Um, so big thanks Chris for joining us today and sharing your insight. Please do stay tuned to our future episodes. A reminder that you can subscribe to the Capgemini customer podcast using your favourite podcasting app, for example, SoundCloud, iTunes or Spotify. And in the next episode, we'll be joined by some special guests as we take a look at the impact of COVID-19 on the retail industry. Until then, stay safe. <laughs>